Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. I just remember being like so overwhelmed because I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'm right here with the President of the United States standing in the Oval Office on my first day. Sarah Matthews grew up in Ohio in a politically active Republican family. Her mom works in the district office of a GOP member of the House, and her dad is the director of the Board of Elections for the county. She's now 27, and she has a political resume similar to a lot of conservatives her age. At Kent State, she joined the College Republicans and made her first pilgrimage to the annual CPAC conference in Washington. Zara interned on the Hill for John Boehner and for Senator Rob Portman, both of Ohio, and then she got a job doing comms for Republicans on the Hill. She knew Donald Trump from The Apprentice, but she didn't take his candidacy very seriously in 2016. On election night, she was as shocked as anyone when he defeated Hillary Clinton. But a few years later, in June 2020, she was working for Trump. Like a lot of her colleagues, she was well aware of Trump's flaws, but she says she agreed with his policies. It was more when I saw the way he governed that I bought in to his agenda and everything because I was supportive of the things he was accomplishing. When her mentor, Trump Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany, invited Sarah to be her deputy, Sarah didn't think twice. And that's like everyone's dream if you're working in politics to get an opportunity to work at the White House. It was a chaotic seven months. We had Lafayette Square, COVID is raging. Then we had Ruth Bader Ginsburg die. Then we had the process of trying to confirm a Supreme Court justice. And then came January 6th. You're basically in the White House at a pretty high level, Deputy Press Secretary and you wander into a strategy meeting about helping the president do the coup. Yeah. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. You probably remember Sarah Matthews from her primetime testimony to the January 6th committee in July. She testified about her experience in the White House during the insurrection and how Donald Trump's actions that day so disgusted her that she resigned that night. The January 6th committee is back next week on October 13th for its first hearing since the one at which Sarah appeared. And we thought it was a good time to spend a few hours with Sarah and hear the full story of what it was like for a young Republican to publicly break with the president, upend her career, and experience the full wrath of Trump and his supporters by cooperating with the January 6th committee. Have you ever had the crab dip here? No. Oh, good? it's really right, let's good. Get let's get yeah. some of that. I was going to say we could split that. We met at Old Ebbett Grill near the White House, where Sarah and her colleagues in the Trump administration often hung out. So um, I tell people this all the time. I'm like, I know that Trump's presidency as a whole was, you know, tumultuous. But <laughs> I think that I was there during the craziest period of time. I started the week after uh, Lafayette Square. And then from there, it just like was one thing after another. 
So I think that, um, especially doing communications for him, I know better than you know most of like um, being frustrated with you know some of the tweets or things that he would say. But I still, at the end of the day, was like I'm supportive of his agenda, and I very much did not want Joe Biden to be president either. I didn't buy into like the whole you know he was going to unite the country, whatever, because. I just knew that he would get pulled further to the left by the progressives. And so and I think, sure, Trump has had plenty of controversies in the past and even some things, you know, that I had to defend during my time at the White House. But I don't think anything was of the magnitude of what happened with January 6th and then his denialism about the election. I don't think any of that, um, anything that he kind of said or did in the past even has come close to what um, he's currently doing, you know. As the campaign goes on through 2020 and he starts talking about voting issues and in hindsight setting the stage for some of the things we saw, did you ever get the sense like, oh shit, this could really get ugly if he loses? Like, I see what he's doing here. Um, you know, I think I knew that he was kind of setting the stage by talking about mail-in voting of like if he loses you know he has something to point to for why he lost and you know wanting an excuse but just I, but just an excuse i'll be honest i disagreed with um how i th- thought democrats kind of weaponized covid to their advantage to change election laws and yeah. do that i didn't support that yeah but then you know obviously we saw on election night they're still tallying results and Trump went out and, um, you know, declared that he was the winner. And I remember people that night at the White House saying, oh, there's still so many votes to be counted. Like he could pull it off. And I literally was like the one, you know, pessimist in the room being like, no, he can't. I was like, Georgia is not trending our way. If you're a Republican candidate and Georgia is in contention, like that's not a recipe for success. So I remember thinking that night and telling my colleagues, no, we lost. And so obviously then to kind of see everything he said and did after that, it definitely didn't uh, sit right with me, what he was saying in the aftermath of the election. All right, well, let's fast forward. So in the days leading up to January 6th, like when did you first get the hints that this event could be more than just a typical Trump rally. So I'm, I'm going to sound super naive, but I genuinely had no idea it was going to end up being what it was. So in my view, I went into January 6th kind of thinking, oh, this is his last rally speech while he's in office. And I went into it thinking, oh, this is kind of a historic moment in that regard. But I will say it wasn't really until the evening of January 5th that I had a hint of thinking like, oh, he thinks that the outcome of tomorrow is going to be different than what we all know it's going to be because, um, and this was something that I was asked about in my testimony, on the evening of January 5th, the entire White House press team was asked to go into the Oval to meet with him. I was at the White House for six, seven months. That never happened. Not once were we ever asked to be all assembled. How, How many people is that? Like 12, maybe. Uh, or it might have been less than that because some people had left. And the president asks you or the chief of staff or? Um, it was one of his personal assistants that came over to the, the press offices and said, you know, hey, POTUS wants 
the entire press team in here. So, and immediately you all get up and go. Yeah. So, um, and it was, I actually started to notice that no one was around and I was like, where is everyone? And then it was like, I was like one of the last people to get pulled in. So they were kind of like finding us throughout the West wing being like, Hey, get into the oval. And so I'm one of the last people to walk in. I see the whole team assembled there and who else is there besides the, the press team? So it was the press team uh, and then Dan Scavino, the White House photographer, and one of his personal assistants, Nick Luna. So at, we're all assembled in the Oval. And Do you know why you've been called in there? At that time, no. It wasn't until I walked in. And he wanted to talk strategy for what we were going to do the next day. And he said, how do we get the rhinos to do the right thing? That's what stuck out to me the most from that interaction. Because in my head, I'm thinking, like, what do you mean, like, do the right thing? Like, we know that they are going to certify the results of the election, and, you know, this is it. Like, they're, what, like, what do you mean? And um, so I remember being confused, and he also seemed like he was in a great mood, which also struck me as odd, because I'm like, you would think he'd be upset knowing that the following day the results were going to be certified and so it was like in that moment I realized like oh my gosh he thinks that there's a chance tomorrow that like you know the outcome could change and that was alarming to me and then um, I think no one really spoke up immediately and finally one of my colleagues was like you know sir I think the focus of tomorrow should be your speech and let's just focus on having a good day and kind of you know just I feel like no one yeah, answered his question directly because I think we were all under the same you know, assumption that nothing was going to change tomorrow, like the outcome wasn't going to change. But Nor he, would I want it to because I knew he lost. But he's operating under the assumption that his White House staff kind of like knows what tomorrow, what January 6th is all about. You know, I don't know. I guess I assume now looking back on it, sure, maybe. But like I was definitely not aware and I don't think some of my colleagues were aware either at least maybe you know lower ranking people I don't think we were aware of like the coordinated effort going on behind the scenes did anyone sort of argue the other point of like okay sir here's what you do here's how we can get the rhinos to do the right thing um so when I entered the room no no there were no conversations about that like I said I was one of the last people to walk in but I I truly don't think that any of my colleagues on the press team would have advocated for that. Well, Kaylee would have, no? I don't think, I think that she was under the assumption, too, that he had lost and that we needed to move on from it. Um, she was supportive of him, in this, kind of like me, with like him pursuing this litigation. And so that meeting is, is late in the day? Like late in the day. So, so you know so what's what so happens funny that, now, yeah. too, is that now knowing the reporting, I think right before he called us in, he met with the vice president. Which meeting was that? So that was the so famous I, meeting? Mm hmm Of like the VP basically saying, hey, I'm not going to do what you want me to do tomorrow. I don't think I have the constitutional authority. So that's even more interesting now, looking at how he acted in our meeting with him because he was in a good mood. Right. So he still thought there was a chance, even though the you know vice president had just told him I'm not going to do that. And the accounts of that meeting with Pence are that he was really angry with Pence and mm -hmm. they had like a pretty sharp yeah. confrontation. Exactly. So it is interesting to look at now of like how his mood kind of shifted when we entered the room. So looking back on that, just putting this together, do you think that he comes out of that meeting and thinks, 
I need like a, a public strategy to sort of move Mike Pence. And the way to do that is to move, you know, members on the Hill. I've got to like put some more pressure on him. Yeah, I think so. I think that he wanted to put that public pressure on them because then it, yeah, in turn might put more pressure on Pence. Like that was the way to get Pence to flip. Yeah, you guys were sort of being recruited to sort of come up with a, a, a strategy public. to do that. But yeah. like it wasn't said in those you know words. But like now piecing it together, it's clear that that was the intention. Yeah. So do you remember what you were thinking, like going home and what what the next day would be like? Did you have? No. You still didn't really know. Like even after that meeting, like. I was obviously like uncomfortable after that meeting, but I still did not like know what the following day would entail. All right, so take us through January 6th. Yeah, so... You're not um, going to the White House thinking like, oh, fuck, this is the day, you know, I've been dreading and everything's going to go to hell. Like, that's not at all. No. You know, it's so funny. Like, I look back on it and I'm like, oh, we're getting toward the end. I rolled in at like 9.30 maybe, 9, 9.30. Like, that was late for me to get there at that time. Because I didn't think that it was going to be like that crazy of a day. Yeah. And so I um, I remember a bunch of my colleagues were saying that they were going to walk down from the West Wing to the Ellipse where Trump was giving his speech to watch. And so I didn't go with the motorcade. We stood off to the side of the stage, watched his speech. I remember it being freezing that day. And this is going to sound horrible, but like I've listened to so many Trump speeches going to like rallies all across the country with him at a certain point you just start to tune them out so I was not really you know actively listening yeah but I remember I perked up when he said that he was going to walk to the Capitol with them and one of my colleagues looking at me and saying like oh my gosh is he going to walk to the Capitol and I was like no there's no way Secret Service would ever let him do that you know he's saying that for you know color but there I, I was like he has zero intention of doing that and it's freezing he doesn't want to do that yeah that was at least what I thought at the time yeah. you know um, and then I perked up again during the speech when he attacked the vice president and that obviously was disappointing because you know I think everyone can agree on the fact that Pence was the most loyal person to him during his presidency and so for him to kind of cap off his presidency by attacking him you know this person who has like bent over backwards for him I just thought was um, horrible and so that stuck out as well. Well just slow down for a sec so it ends and you and your colleagues go back do you remember talking to any of your colleagues any anyone anyone starting to like get really worried about how the day might play out? No, it wasn't until we saw the images on TV and thinking this could get out of hand really fast. And I voiced that concern to Kaylee and others just saying like, hey, this is this could turn ugly real quick. It doesn't look good because those initial images we were seeing where there was a police presence and they had a bike rack perimeter, which felt like it wasn't enough for this, you know, crowd that seemed a little unruly. And I remember thinking, like, oh, my gosh, the Capitol Police, like, it doesn't look like there is enough of a presence there. Like, they could be overwhelmed by this and being worried about that. And then I made the case that, like, I thought the president needed to tweet something out and, you know, encourage his supporters to be peaceful and to um, respect law enforcement. And that I thought that he needed to have a call to action and tell these people to kind of back away from the Capitol, too. 
And this was probably the most famous part of your testimony, is this anecdote and your advice about what he should do. So just, I know you've talked about this, you know, publicly and a number of other times, but just take us through how that advice was received in the White House. Yeah, so we instantly knew, you know, when we saw the images on TV, this is bad, he needs to tweet something immediately. I voiced that to my colleagues and my boss at the time, Kaylee McEnany. I remember getting an alert on my phone, and um, everyone in the room did too, and we're like, oh, he tweeted something, thank God. We look down, it's the tweet about Mike Pence not having the courage to do the right thing. I'm like, oh my God, that is the last thing that we needed in this situation. So I immediately go back to Kaylee, say, he needs to tweet something out ASAP, and this is what the message needs to be. She agrees. She goes to the Oval. He was in the back dining room. There were some other staff in there. They get him to finally tweet out another tweet. And this is the one where he says, stay peaceful. And Kaylee comes back, tells me that he didn't even want to include that portion of the tweet, that it took a lot of convincing on their part, which is so ironic to me that he finally agreed on stay peaceful because that implies that they were already being peaceful. It's like, stay peaceful. Uh, no, so that what was we were a lie seeing itself. was violent. Yeah. Who was it that convinced him finally to do that? Um, so it was Ivanka Trump who came up with the suggestion, stay peaceful, and he agreed to that. So it really wasn't, in, he had a room full of other people telling him, you need to tweet this, you need to tweet this. But it was Ivanka that, you know, convinced him. So Kaylee comes back. I tell her the tweet is insufficient. There needs to be a call to action. He needs to tell these people to leave and he needs to condemn the violence that we are seeing. She agrees. She goes back. He fires off another tweet. You know, it didn't meet the mark. And then I remember being like, he's got to, you know, condemn this violence. And that's where I was in a room full of colleagues and a different colleague of mine spoke up and they said that they didn't think he should condemn the violence because... Who was that? I'm not going to get into naming specific names. Has but that become, is that public? It's not public, but I don't think that it's as relevant to name them, but this person made the case that we shouldn't condemn the violence because that then, you know, kind of admits that these are his supporters who are being violent. And then there was also the argument floating around of, well, what if they're Antifa? And I was like, all the better if it turns out they're Antifa and we condemned them, because I think you should just condemn violence 100% of the time. And that's the case that I made. Um, and I got you know, visibly upset in front of this room full of colleagues of mine. And you know, they, the one colleague said, well, you know, if he condemns the violence, we're handing the media a win. And that was when I pointed at the TV um, showing the coverage of these people being violent. And I said, do you think it looks like we're effing winning? Like, screw the politics of it. Like, he needs to put a stop to this. Yeah. How come you don't want to uh, name that person? I feel like th uh, th their name's not out there? It's not. Yeah. And, like, to me, even if my friendships with some of those people no longer exist, I respect them and the friendship that we did have. And I don't think it's relevant because it's not like this person was going and advocating to President Trump themselves. If they had it been, it was an internal, it was an internal thing. 
the only person... He wasn't having any influence with the president. Exactly. This person was not having any influence with the president. So if, if they had, you know, been with the president that day directly, that'd be different. But it, it, the name doesn't seem to matter, and I still respect the friendship that we had, that it doesn't feel like I need to kind of air it out. But I do think that it's um, an important anecdote in the sense that I think it kind of, like, paints the picture of just how focused the Trump White House was on winning. And, it, you know, that was always, like, well, we have to own the media and the libs and things like that. And that was, I think that's why the committee wanted me to tell that anecdote because it kind of paints that picture for the American people of just how the mindset of the Trump White House was. Well, that's what I was going to ask you is what, like, you've, I, I'm sure you've thought about this quite a bit, but what, what do you think it was that created that, that mindset? Is it the foxhole mentality of, 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 of fighting for your, your person, your, your mm-hmm. candidate? Is it... Is it something else? I mean, it's a pretty dark, grim place to be at when you're watching those images and you're still thinking in terms of like winning a Twitter fight, basically. Yeah. Um, no, I think it definitely was, you know, set from the top of like the tone of how to operate. You know, Trump is someone who I don't think ever admits fault. And so. That was kind of how, from a communications perspective, you know, we handled a lot of things was, you know, you could never really admit fault. And I actually tweeted something about this the other day. It was during the whole debacle with the Biden White House where Biden called out for the deceased lawmaker. And you saw that the White House press secretary doubled down. She wouldn't admit, you know, that he just made a mistake. That's okay. We're human. It's okay to make mistakes. But for her to double down and say, well, she was on his mind. It's like, oh, come on. Like, and, but I almost had to like sympathize with her in that moment because that was the mentality in the Trump White House. Like if Trump had done something similarly, I, I don't know if we would have done any different. We probably would have come up with some sort of similar, you know, way to combat it. And because he did not ever want Kaylee to walk out to the podium and say he was wrong. And so, yeah, it is kind of toxic in a way to, like, look at it now. But he never once lifted the phone to, like, try to call in for help or, like, reached out to, you know, his own vice president to see if he was safe. The tweets that he sent out were so insufficient. Um, The video that he eventually sent out, uh, he started off with the words, you know, we had an election that was stolen from us. And so it was so painfully clear that he didn't want to act he didn't want to call off the mob but he was the only person that the mob would have listened to it sounds like you're still um somewhat sympathetic to kaylee do you think that she did everything she could have that day yeah um and obviously seeing her um that day i i knew she was kind of just as shook by it all as the rest of us um everyone honestly in the building was for the most part, pretty shell-shocked. Um, and it was like clear on everyone's face that everyone was pretty distraught as to what was going on. Who did you find in the White House, who, who obviously, short besides Donald Trump, who did you find was the most disappointing in the way that they acted that day inside the White House? Um, you know, I really only had interactions for the most part with the press team and then the media. Um, that day 
but... Well, even if you expand it to what you know now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I in guess... In other words, who is the person or persons that could have done more and clearly didn't and just, you know, let Trump be Trump, you know? Um, maybe most disappointing was Mark Meadows. I, I feel like he was often seen as an enabler and he wouldn't, um, you know, I. it's like he wouldn't speak up and say what we all knew and would kind of sometimes just sit back. And I heard that from multiple people in general during my tenure at the White House where it was like, he was always kind of looking out for his own best interests, it felt like. So I wasn't in the room that day with, you know, the president. And I, I don't know what, you know, maybe he was himself advocating for. But I think his text messages make clear that he was getting bombarded by people of what the message needed to be. And so I think that it, it's disappointing now, too, to see, like, people like him not be cooperative with the January 6th committee because they were privy to that stuff. So it's like, yeah. I can sit there and talk about what I knew and everything, but now you have you know someone like him, and it's not just him though, there are others who aren't being as forthcoming, which is extremely disappointing. When did you decide that you were going to publicly resign that day? So it was um, once the video tweet was sent out. I knew that I wanted to resign because I think I kept hoping throughout the day, like if he would just say this in the tweet and oh, if he could just get this tweet right or whatever. And I kept giving him like chance after chance. And it was like, he had the opportunity to act and he chose not to when it mattered most. And then it was like seeing that video and knowing he, you know, started it off by talking about the election being stolen, which a lie. And then he finally tells these people to, you know, go home. But then he follows it up by telling them, we love you, you're very special. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. After everything we just witnessed, you're telling these people, we love you, you're very special. And I was just like, this is indefensible. Like I cannot like defend this. And I defended a lot. <laughs> but for me, his failure to act that day and like refusal really, I just, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't see myself walking into um, the White House the following day. So I knew I was going to resign in that moment, but I finished out the work day, went home, told my loved ones what I was going to do, and then made the decision to resign and called Kaylee up and told her. What was the conversation with Kaylee like? I mean, she was your mentor, your friend, the person that brought you there, and she didn't resign that day, obviously. Um, it was brief. Yeah, it, it was just she wished me well, and um, that was kind of the end of it. So for me, like, I just had such like a visceral reaction to everything that had transpired that day because I think of like my past um, work history of working on the Hill, and I explained that to her when I resigned of just how this I was personally impacted by this and that I had lost faith in him, and I knew I could not execute my job responsibilities to the best of my abilities and so I resigned that evening and then I publicly right yes yeah, so how, how did you decide to do it I didn't want to tweet it out from my account or anything um, so I thought it was best to give it to a reporter and give them a resignation statement from me and then let that speak for itself and so I gave it to a reporter that I trusted. I gave it to John Roberts from Fox News. And then he was the one to blast it out. 
and then it obviously just blew up. I didn't expect it, I feel like, to blow up as much as it did, but I think I was the second person to resign. I think Stephanie Grisham went first, but we that was not like coordinated at all. We were not in communication, um, but she resigned like maybe 15 minutes before me, and then mine hit, and then obviously multiple others afterward. Did you... John Roberts reported on Fox News Trump was probably watching it in real time. Yeah. Did you ever hear how he reacted? No, I've never heard how he reacted. But you know what's so funny is like when I resigned, he still had access to his Twitter. He hadn't gotten you know shut out yet. And so I was fully anticipating, oh, I'm going to get a tweet. But then it was like, I think right after I resigned, like shortly after, um, they locked him out of his Twitter account. And so I ended up never getting a tweet. And so that was kind of a relief. Was it weird to suddenly like be on the other side of that communication apparatus? The, you know, I mean, you saw it from the inside of when he would go after someone and what it would do. And suddenly you're like waiting for... An attack. Yeah. yeah. No, it definitely was a strange feeling to think that I would be on the receiving end of it. But I knew that, you know, would have happened had he still had his Twitter account and kind of was like, okay, like whatever. I mean, I still definitely got a lot of, you know, hate online, you know, in the aftermath of resigning on January 6th, but I think it would have been, you know, 10 times worse had he still had access to his social media. I'm curious, after you did that, do you feel like the venom from pro-Trump people was more than the support and encouragement and from people who said, you know, you did the right thing, I'm glad you did it? So, um, like from... I imagine there was both. It was a little bit of both. I would say, like, um, from strangers, a lot of hate, you know, and venom and people online. Um, From people I know from Washington, D.C., a lot of private support and encouragement. Um, A lot of, yeah, people reached out to be like thank you for doing what you did and I'm really proud of you you know things like that but it is really interesting to see kind of how the opinion on January 6th has shifted so much because like you know I mentioned that evening I had a lot of Republicans in DC reach out to me to express that they supported my decision but I don't know if you know maybe all of those people would feel the same way now because there's been such a shift in the way that Republicans view January 6th now. A lot of people who are never had the view of Trump that you had, never went through through the experience of supporting him and working for him, have said, well, this was obvious. This was obvious that something like this was going to happen. And everything we know about him was sort of leading up to a moment like this. And why did it take so long for you to see what was obvious to so many of his his critics and it seems like you have complicated feelings about all this because it's not like you're a member of the resistance now no yeah and you're Um, still a conservative republican so i think you know what's crazy is like looking back on it obviously i was disappointed with the way that he handled january 6th that day ultimately like that led me to resign but i've become even more you know disenchanted by him and what we've learned since then. Because there was so much that I was unaware of at the time. Um, 
knowing how coordinated of an effort it was to try to overturn the results. And on top of that, his continuation to this day to push that, you know, the big lie that the election was stolen. Um, I think that has really, you know, converted me to the belief that he is unfit to hold office. So that's why I think it's important then for, you know, people like me who were, you know, huge believers in his agenda to be like, hey, he's lying to the American people. The election was not stolen and we should not nominate this person in 2024 because he doesn't deserve that position anymore. And it, it's disappointing, too, because I know that, like, privately, there are so many other Republicans who know this, too, to be true, that the election wasn't stolen, but they're not willing to, you know, say it because for fear of being in his good graces. But it's like, I don't get how he still has this control over people because he lost. Why on earth would we nominate him to run again in 2024 when he lost against maybe the weakest candidate or opponent ever you know I think it's okay to be like hey he did a lot of good I support his agenda but why don't we put up someone else who can run on those same kind of ideals and continue the work that we did during the four years of Trump's presidency but it doesn't necessarily need to be Trump at the helm tell us a little bit about what it was like working with the January 6th committee like what is the what's the process like like once that's set up and running, when did you first realize that you, you would be called in to talk to them? So it was in October of 2021, I had my first contact with them. They reached out to me through a mutual friend and asked if I would be interested in coming in for an off the record conversation, which was smart on their part, you know, kind of disarming, going through a mutual friend of mine yeah. to make me feel a little more comfortable. And it ended up being a one. This was Alyssa, right? It was Alyssa Farah. <laughs> yeah. So very smart of them to use, you know, our friendship in that way. But um, it ended up being um, a private conversation between Liz Cheney and I. Um, no staff. Just you and Liz Cheney. And Alyssa was present as well. But wow. um, but no staff from the committee, which I feel like was really smart on her part because um, she knew I was probably a little apprehensive because it's, you know, a, Democrat run committee and um, but she wanted to meet with me just you know face to face and just chat about what I knew and so that was my first initial kind of um, introduction to the committee and so I did that talked with her and then it was a couple months later wait just to pause there for a oh, second yeah. did it surprise you that it was with you know the the vice chair of the committee who was having this conversation not a staff did it surprise you that she was taking such a hands-on role? Oh, 100%. I couldn't believe, you know, that she was taking time out of her schedule to meet one-on-one -on -one with me. She told me, like, this will not leak, that you are cooperating. And to her credit, it didn't. It never leaked. Never leaked. Until you were ready to go public. Yeah. So did not leak that I met with her one-on-one. -on -one which is kind of crazy. Where did you meet with her? In her office? Or? It was like um, one of those hideaway offices yeah, yeah. in the basement of the Capitol. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like an unmarked, you know, door. Um, and I was a house employee at the time, so I had a badge. I didn't need to worry about having access to the building. So we were able to be pretty discreet about it. Right. But you, you'd gone on to work as the 
um, to do comms for the subcommittee on climate change on the yeah, minority side. Yes, so I was doing comms um, for the select committee on climate change. And um, so, yeah, I was a house employee. So I, it, we were able to be discreet about it. And then, yeah, I was just. What did she ask you in that like session? Like, what was that like? It was a lot of them just, I think, trying to get like a sense on like, you know, what had transpired in the lead up to January 6th, what happened that day, and then looking for direction of like, oh, who else should we talk to? Like, who do you think would be good for us to talk to? Yeah. And um, so kind of like pointing them in the right direction. So yeah, so. Did you hire a lawyer at that point yet? No, I did not. Yeah, which maybe, you know, people think I should have, but I thought, honestly, in my head, I was like, you know what? I think that the work that they're doing is important and I want to be cooperative. And so I knew I had nothing to hide. And it was an off-the-record conversation. So I thought, okay, if I help point them in the right direction then, with their investigation, then that'll be the end of it. Were you impressed with her after that meeting? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Just the fact that she was clearly um, taking this very seriously. So I just really respected her coming out of that meeting, especially the fact the meeting didn't leak. It was then a couple months later when the committee reached back out. I think it was, honestly, um, Liz Cheney who reached back out and called personally, me yeah. personally and yeah. said that they wanted me to come in for an on-the-record taped like deposition. Yeah, which is what we saw clips of in the early hearings. Exactly. And so... So now you've got to get a lawyer. So then I hired a lawyer because I was like, okay, this is a little different. So I hired a lawyer. But again, I was not subpoenaed. I um, went in voluntarily because I thought, you know what, like the information I have, if they deem this useful and I knew there would be public hearings so I thought okay if I go in for the tape deposition oh, you know that could be public I knew it could be public like they were clear about that yes yeah. and um so I thought you know what if I go in and do the tape deposition then maybe I won't have to publicly testify and I like I said though I was supportive of what they were doing the work of yeah. what they were doing I thought there was value in it so I was going to cooperate no matter what but you weren't anxious to publicly testify at that point um, I didn't think that it, there was even a possibility of me being asked to because I was like, oh, they're going to go after, you know, much more higher ranking officials and try to get them to publicly testify. But it, there was like a little thought in the back of my mind of, oh, if there is something that they need from me that they want to publicize, they'll have my tape testimony and they can just air that at the public hearings. And so um, I did the tape deposition in February of 2022. Do you remember when that first became public that you were doing that? It leaked after the fact. So, um, what was it, it like after it leaked in terms of old Trump colleagues? Um, I think like those that I were still in touch with didn't really think anything of it. Yeah. I think they kind of knew that everyone was being hauled in to do it. Yeah. So it wasn't like anyone said anything to me about it. But yeah, so it, that one leaked because you know we met in a more public setting where the offices for the January 6th committee staff are yeah, they're being staked out. Yeah. And media yeah. are staked out there. So, um, I knew it was going to leak. Did you ever talk to Kaylee again? No. Yeah. Well, um, I'm a, like, have a handful of people from the Trump white house that I'm still very good friends with and keep in touch with. But, um, yeah. She never called you. You never reached out to her. Um, I think I reached out after I resigned just to be like, Hey, hope all is well kind of thing. But but yeah, no, I think... Uh, she didn't respond? No. You know, it is what it is. But I'm very much at peace with my decision and have no regrets.
when you're going through this process with the January 6th committee, like lawyers are very cautious. You have a lawyer, you're going in, you're being deposed, you're sworn under oath. Is there anything that the lawyers are, like, what's that like? Like, uh, what, what's like your big fear when you're going through that? Like, like you said, you had nothing to hide, you didn't mm -hmm. do anything wrong. Yeah. But, I mean, I know from working with lawyers that they're always looking for the worst case situation. Was, um, was there any risk? Did you feel like there was any risk? No, honestly, no. I really didn't. Um, the committee staff was seriously nothing but professional with me, always, and courteous. Um, I was a little nervous because I, I, I mean, this was a Democrat-run committee. Sure, it has, you know, it's bipartisan. It does have two Republicans on it. Yeah. But I think the staff was primarily uh, Democrats. You were in prime time. You're I was. <laughs> with yeah. Pottinger. Um, yes, it was Matt Pottinger and I. Um, I was initially told too, Cassidy was going to appear at the hearing that Together. I was at. Yeah, and it was going to be, um, they told me it would probably be me, Cassidy, and another witness. I didn't know at the time, Matt Pottinger, but I knew that he had resigned as well. So I thought that, you know, he might be one of the people they were eyeing. But then obviously they had to move Cassidy up because, you know, she was kind of um, getting these threats from Trump world, you know, we found out. And so it made sense then why they kind of changed it. And she had so much more information it made a lot of sense for them to do a standalone hearing with her so that was um kind of what they initially told me i knew that we were going to be the last hearing too and that they wanted to end it with you know trump administration officials and what he was doing while the riot was going on yeah and that it was going to be about kind of that 187 minutes where he didn't act in the, in the run-up to it and the aftermath what was the reaction from trump world like did you experience threats, harassments? I mean, how, how bad did it get, if, if at all? Um, yeah, it was bad. I mean, I during the hearing, the House Republican um, Twitter account attacked me, which obviously I didn't. I was unaware of. You know, during the hearing itself, I found out about it um, at the conclusion afterward. Um, they called you a liar or something. Yeah, they um, I think called me a liar and a pawn in Pelosi's witch hunt. But you know what was like. And you're the, literally a, a comms person for a House Republican at that point. Yeah, I like worked for a House Republican member. I helped the Republican leadership team with messaging on energy and climate issues. The, the people who work in that office knew that I was a current staffer. Like there was no like, oh, we had no idea she was. Um, Do you know who was responsible for the tweet? I don't know who sent out the tweet. I know who's on the communications operation over there. Um, and they know me well and so there there couldn't be no you know claim of ignorance of oh we had no idea she was a current house employee they all know me right. um and they got so much backlash especially when it came to light that i was a current staffer um and i think they were probably worried about the legal like repercussions of that so then they you know took it down but i will say um the most enraging thing about it to me was that that tweet was sent out before I even uttered a word. So um, we looked at the timestamps of it, and when it was fired off, the hearing had begun, but I had not begun my testimony or my questioning. And so if you're gonna call someone a liar, I, I don't know, maybe just hear what they have to say first. And then the craziest part too that I think made it look even worse for them was that they're not only attacking, you know, the witness who is a current House staffer, they failed to, attack the male witness beside her 
and nothing was ever sent out about Matt Pottinger. He's sitting there echoing the same things I am, saying that Trump failed to act that day, saying that those around him were advocating for him to condemn the violence, call off the mob. So were the people in the clip testimony that they showed, like other you know staffers who were there. And no tweets were sent out about them calling them liars. Nothing I said was contradictory to the testimony of other people that they showed. So that's, I, I just think it's, you know, it's amusing then that they call me a liar when clearly I wasn't lying if my account was backed up by several other people too. Yeah. But it was just an embarrassing look for them. I mean, sure, they deleted it. I guess I appreciate that. But I think it was um, a bad look for them at all for that to be sent out. And on top of it, their whole thing with the January 6th committee hearings is they're irrelevant. The American people don't care. No one's watching. Um, that doesn't align then with the strategy that they um, carried out where they're attacking, you know, one of the witnesses. Like, if I were them, just ignore it. Just don't even be like, oh, you, that snooze fest, no one's tuning in. But, like, they were clearly worried about something I was going to say. They did the same thing to Cassidy Hutchinson, um, you know, where they attacked her character. And I just think um, it shows that they were clearly worried then how the American people were being impacted by the hearings then if you're going to attack, you know, the witnesses. Did you ever get the uh, Trump obviously moved to a different social media platform? Did you ever get the social media response that you dreaded that day on January 6th from him? Um, so I really tried to not check my phone. My boyfriend actually hid my phone in my apartment um, from me like the following day because I started to kind of, you know, doom scroll on Twitter. Yeah. And he was like, absolutely not. We are not reading these things. And, you know, some of it was positive, but obviously a lot of it was negative. And so I, I tried to um, tune it out as much as I could. But Trump sent out a statement about me as well. I don't know if it was the next day or if it was that evening, but there was like a statement just saying, you know, I was like a liar or something. I think he called me 15 minutes of fame, Matthews. So I guess I can say I have a nickname now. Not his best, not his best work Yeah, in terms what, of nicknames. Honestly, that's where my reaction was too. I was like, huh, I thought it would be like something better, but. But I mean, I guess the big question about all this is the experience. You haven't left the Republican Party because of all this. No, I would still definitely identify as a conservative, but I, I don't like where the party, you know, is headed. Yeah. I'm not going to be one of those like, oh, I'm leaving the Republican Party, going to work against them. Like, I don't want Donald Trump to be president again. Um, I don't want him to run in 2024. I think that we have, you know, a better bench of people that we could um, nominate, but I'm not going to be like some, you know, person who switches parties. What do you do if it's Trump versus Biden? Oh my God. I don't know. I mean, it's not, I, it's not going to be. It seems to me that's the most likely scenario. Zero chance Biden runs again. I, I don't think he's going to, you know, admit it now, but I don't know who it will be, but it Pete seems Buttigieg like- Judge or Kamala Harris, or I'm just saying, what if it's Democrat X against Donald Trump? Yeah. No, I, I think I'll end up, I don't know. I mean, it, it, we'll see what happens. I'm just, I'm very hopeful that it is not Trump as the Republican nominee. So you're not like really where in the place where like Liz Cheney has gone yet. 
it's all just going to depend on whether or not like Trump is the nominee in 2024. Like so much of like what I think where my support will go is contingent on that. You're staying in the Republican Party, sort of sticking it out. You're, you're remaining in politics. I think a lot of other people would leave politics, perhaps more likely leave the Republican Party. But do you feel like your options in terms of candidates are rapidly dwindling, considering how many Republicans have adopted the thing about Trump that you found the hardest to swallow, and that is the election lies and the conspiracy theories and we were talking about this before, how when you first resigned, there was that brief window where the whole, the majority view among Republicans, at least elected Republicans, but it showed up in polls as well, was to turn away from Trump and to say, that's it, this is, we're putting him in the rearview mirror. That obviously shifted dramatically. He consolidated support over the party and has helped at least nominate dozens of candidates around the country as we go into the midterms who hold the view that like led you to resign. Would you ever work for someone who played footsie with those with those beliefs? Um, yeah, I think that it is kind of crazy to see where we're at now that um, so few Republicans are willing to just acknowledge the simple fact that, you know, the election was not stolen. And I definitely think that if I were to work for a politician again, I would need them to be willing to admit that, which seems like, you know, it's such a low bar. But like nowadays, it is one of those things like even if a lot of Republicans privately hold that sentiment, um, a lot of people aren't willing to publicly say it. It's not like I, I think a majority of Republicans aren't out there, you know, blasting that the election was stolen. I think that's more of a, like a certain sect of the Republican Party that is more vocal about it. But I just think there is this um, like the Mastrianos of the world. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But then I think there is like this kind of group of other Republicans who, even if they know that to be true, they just won't publicly kind of wade into it because um, it's not worth like, you know, being the next target of Trump. Isn't that in some ways almost more problematic and dangerous? Yeah. Because isn't, isn't like a lot of the story as I hear you tell it, is, you know, tolerating a lot of little things for, in your mind, justifiable reasons until something really bad happens and then it causes you to rethink all of those previous decisions. I mean, I, I think that this is, I don't know if there's an easy answer for this, but isn't part of the lesson that you've just sort of unspooled here, like, that you can't countenance the little things because they grow and they metastasize and suddenly you're going into work thinking it's going to be a normal day and it turns out to be January 6th yeah I think um, I think this experience like it I see that I think it's important for people to be out there you know saying that Trump is lying that the election was not stolen because if you have the former president of the United States making such a bold claim to some folks they're gonna take him at his word even if he has zero proof of it and so that's why I think it's so important for 
former administration officials like myself and others who have publicly said, no, this is not true. The election was not stolen. And it is disappointing to then see lawmakers who I know know better, um, yeah. who are more fearful of um, you know, losing their position of power than doing the right thing or saying the right thing. And that's why I have such respect for Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and those who voted to you know, impeach Trump. They did so at the, their own detriment. And I think that there's something really powerful in that to say, I care more about telling the truth and standing up for democracy than I do about holding on to you know, my power. And I don't think like the Republican Party is lost as a whole of like, oh, you know, there's no saving it. Yeah. But I, I think it's gonna take a long time to kind of rid ourselves of this this toxic environment where, you know, people are clinging to conspiracy theories and pushing, you know, these lies. One final thing. Have you been brought in to the Justice Department investigation on any of this yet? Um, I have not. Yeah. Um, obviously, if they, you know, reached out, um, I would be cooperative. But um, like this thus far have not been contacted um, to be you know, interviewed for them. Look, I remember after your resignation on January 6th, I remember texting you and saying, you know, just to editorialize a little bit, um, to take my reporter hat off. Like, I remember saying, you know, you should be really proud and what you did was the right thing. And obviously it, it, it was, and you, you, you should be proud. Yeah, no, and I appreciate you saying that. And, like, I think it is one of those things, like, now that I've had more time to kind of process everything that happened, I've learned more about, you know, kind of what was going on behind the scenes. Um, it definitely has been, yeah, just something that I've kind of, I don't know, something that I've, like, had to kind of come to terms with, of, like, maybe feeling, like, a level of guilt. But, like, at the end of the day, I, I did what I did, like, with the knowledge that I had at the time. And, like, I still stand by that decision to resign. I, you know, think that it was important to cooperate with the committee to publicly testify. And so, yeah, I'm very much, you know, at peace now with where I'm at. Sarah, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Adam Ellington is senior producer. Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of audio at Politico. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of audio at Politico. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening. <laughs>